0: There's nothing in this world as powerful, as formative, as life-changing as the Word of God. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created. You catch that? The universe was created by the Word of God. Hebrews 11.3. Psalm 33.9 says, for he spoke... And it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Romans 4.17 says, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And of course, we find a detailed description of all of that happening in Genesis chapter 1, where in verse 3, God said, let there be light and there was light. Verses 6 and 7, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Verses 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and it was so. Verses 20 and 21, God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Everything that was created was created by the word of God. Now just how powerful is this word of God? The fact is there's nothing else like it. And that isn't just a history lesson, by the way. Just something that happened a long time ago in the past because Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. Proverbs 4.22 says the words of God are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. John 17.17 says God's word is truth. He didn't say it was truth. Psalm 119.105 says God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God, this truth, this Life, this healing, this lamp, this light, this word of God is living; it is active by which everything that exists was created. This word of God that was breathed out by Him, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This word of God that formed mankind and breathed nostrils into him, the breath of life into his nostrils, this same word of God has been given to us as a divine miracle, a supernatural gift intended to light our path, to show us the way, to teach us, to heal us, to strengthen us, to protect us, to guide us through life. Let that sink in a moment. The same God who spoke the universe into existence has spoken directly to you and to me. And just to be sure we don't forget what he's telling us, he had some of his best men write it down so we could keep going back to it, so that we could keep feeding on it for our every need. The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. The fact is there's nothing in this world or outside of this world like the word of God. Nothing compares to it. Nothing measures up to it. Nothing rivals it. Nothing can contain it, disprove it, or defeat it. It is life to those who find it and healing to their flesh. As a follower of Christ... All that you have to do in order to receive all that this word of God has to offer you. All you have to do is read it and then honor it, live it out, just do what it says and you will find that power. You'll find that healing, that strength, that life, that light, that truth. You will find all of that. It will be living and active in your own life. Honestly, when you think about it, it, at least at a surface level, it seems like that would be the easiest thing in the world for people to do. Yet it has proven to be one of the very hardest things in the world for people to do. Honoring God's word. That has been an epic struggle for human beings since the dawn of humankind. Because the truth is, although for the most part... Uh, not complicated to understand. It is also not always easy to do what it says, is it? Because often God's word requires us to live in a way that is counter to our human nature, right? Denying ourselves, dying to what we naturally desire, uh, denouncing our former lives and following Christ is not really that hard to understand, but it can be supremely difficult to actually do that at times. Certainly, Uh, Certainly the Israelites were living examples of that in our story as we continue to work our way through the book of Joshua, When it came to honoring God's word, it was a bit of a mixed bag for them then, just as it is, I think, for most of us today. And yet when the people of Israel would commit to honoring God's word, the results were nothing short of astounding. And, And therein lies the lesson for us. Because honoring God's word at times will mean you'll have to make some very difficult choices. You'll have to do some things you would rather not do, which is why we struggle with honoring his word as much as we do. But as difficult as that can be at times, it is the difference between success and failure. Between victory and defeat. Between fulfillment and want. But it's more than just that. Because for the Christian, to honor God's word is the only way. It it is the only way to be true to who we actually are. Which means for the follower of Christ, to not honor God's word is to live a counterfeit life. Because we were created according to his word. We were called according to his word. We're commanded to live now according to his word. And so anything short of that, and we're actually living a double life, an inauthentic life. We're pretending to be something that we're not. It's precisely, by the way, why there are so many Christians today who are so dissatisfied with their lives, who struggle to find contentment, who never feel like they're where they should be or could be, because whether they realize it or not, they're living inauthentic lives. They're trying to find happiness and contentment while living lives that do not actually honor God's word. And I'm just telling you, that is a losing proposition every single time. The Israelites, they had to learn this the hard way, as we'll see in our story today. But they were getting it. They were learning the only way to live the life that God created you to live is to honor his word. And look. That's the only way that any of us is ever going to find that sense of purpose and fulfillment that we also desperately want in our lives. It only comes. It only comes when you are being authentically you. And the way you do that as a Christian is to honor God's word in your life every single day. All right, let's pick up the story then where we left off last time. And we'll see what that looks like. We'll begin at Joshua chapter 10 and read the first five verses. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he'd done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So several uh, Canaanite cities at this point have already fallen to Joshua and the Israelites in battle. And then in chapter 9, you'll remember the Gibeonites uh, peacefully, although through deception, convince Israel to make a covenant with them, which means Joshua and the Israelites now effectively control uh, what is known as the central plateau, sort of the middle section of Canaan, thereby separating the northern and uh, southern regions of Canaan, kind of cutting them off. And so now these five Amorite kings in the south, down in the southern area, who've been watching these other cities fall or give up one by one, they decide they need to take back some of that strategic ground in the middle. So they band together to fight, not against the Israelites directly, because number one, they've already uh, seen what the Israelites can do. Secondly, they want control of the ever-important Beth Horon Pass, which runs between Uh, The hill country and the Judean wilderness right near Gibeon. And so they decide to attack the Israelites' newest allies, the Gibeonites, because of their strategic location and probably also because Gibeon was a royal city and all of its men were warriors, according to verse 2. Because if these Amorite kings could take over Gibeon and its military that would significantly bolster their own forces with additional uh, resources and men to be able to fight against Israel later, uh, or so they think. And something else to keep in mind here, these Amorites who are about to attack Gibeon were not your run-of-the-mill Canaanites, okay? These were the giant clans that occupied the southern part of Canaan. First of all, the city of Hebron mentioned in verse 3 was formerly called Kiriath Arba. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 14. And Kiriath Arba was the city of the Anakim giant clan descended from the Nephilim, described in Numbers chapter 13, the very same giants in the very same city that the Israelites were afraid to conquer under Moses, which led to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And interestingly, as a side note, in Joshua 14 as well, Caleb, the only other spy uh, other than Joshua who did not fear the Anakim giants under Moses, he ends up being given Hebron as his own inheritance, as God promised in Numbers 14 which just goes to show you that God honors those who honor his word. But back to the story. Because not only are these people of Hebron who are now coming up against uh, Gibeon, a giant clan of the south, but it gets even worse than that for Gibeon, because all throughout Deuteronomy, also in Amos, also in Numbers, the term Amorites was used as a reference for all of the giant clans of southern Canaan on both uh, both the eastern and western sides of the Jordan. Right? We know that uh, the Amorite kings Sihon of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan were both descended from the giant clans of the Anakim and Raphaim who migrated into Canaan, uh, Canaan back in the 3rd uh, millennium BC in fact uh, in fact the size of king Og's bed is described in Deuteronomy chapter 3 as a bed made of iron 9 cubits long and 4 cubits wide that's 13 feet long and 6 feet wide and it's not just the bible uh, by the way, that gives us a historical record of these giant clans. We have ancient Ugaritic texts from the city of Ugarit, which is a uh, Tel Shamra in uh, northern Syria today, where we've excavated a treasure trove of ancient texts many consider to be the most important or one of the most important archeological discoveries of the 20th century. And these texts outline and confirm and expand upon in detail many of the places and events in the Hebrew Bible and in those texts we have descriptions of the giant Ra'phaim clans living in Bashan. The point being that although the giant clans east of the Jordan had already been wiped out by Moses and the Israelites earlier, these five armies coming up from Gibeon now from west of the Jordan are alive and well and descendant from the giant Amorite clans of the south. So this isn't just a problem for Gibeon it is a really big problem both literally and figuratively okay so we know what they're up against let's keep reading verses 6 through 10 and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying do not relax your hand from your servants come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bethoron, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda." So the Amorites come up from the south to attack Gibeon, and in response, the Gibeonites send for Joshua to come and save them from what is otherwise a certain death, right? And so the Lord says to Joshua, do not fear them, right, for good reason. He knows who he's coming up against. Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you, which is, by the way, almost verbatim, what God says to Moses back in Numbers 21 as is the Israelites are about to do battle with the giant King Og of Bashan. And so Joshua and God's people waste no time. They immediately get up, they march through the night to get to Gibeon and defeat the invading armies of the southern clans of Canaan, which in and of itself is an incredible uh, testament to the Israel's commitment to honoring God's word, specifically. The covenant that had been made with the Gibeonites because right before this, just in the the previous chapter, the Israelites wanted to kill the Gibeonites for deceiving them. And they were intent on doing so because verse uh, 26 of chapter 9 tells us that Joshua delivered them, referring to the Gibeonites, out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. So clearly the Israelites are not going up to Gibeon because of their strong affection for the people of Gibeon. And they're also not going up there because it's going to be a cakewalk or an easy fight. At least it certainly appears not to be the case. They're going up against five armies of giants. Why in the world would the Israelites even bother? Why muster all of your fighting men to march 19 miles uphill through the night to make war against five enemy armies of unusual size and strength in defense of a city full of people that you don't even like? Why would you do that? Because there was a covenant between them. God's word clearly stated if a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Numbers 32. You see, the Israelites chose to honor God's word, and honoring God's word means we fight for each other. You just think about how easy it would have been, how convenient it would have been for Joshua and the Israelites to not go up to Gibeon, right? Right? In many ways, this would have actually solved their problem of being stuck with a group of people who took advantage of them, who lied to them and tricked them into making a covenant with these Canaanites. Now all Joshua has to do is not go up to Gibeon and let those Amorites solve his problem for him. But Joshua did go up to Gibeon. Because he made a covenant with them. And now, no matter how big or how bad the armies were that were waiting for him there, he intended to honor God's word by fighting for God's people. Psalm 82, 4 says, Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The Apostle John said, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First John 3:16. The apostle Paul said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, honoring God means no one fights alone. When there's a need, we stand up and we go to that need, wherever it is, whenever it is, no matter what we may face when we get there, because there is no reality where Christians honor the covenant in God's word while ignoring the needs of God's people. You cannot do both. You cannot honor his word and turn a blind eye to the troubles of your brother or sister in Christ at the same time. Those two uh, dispositions are entirely incompatible, incongruent which means our relationship with others and especially with other believers, they have to be deeper than surface level so that we're able to recognize the needs of other people in their lives when they arise, when those needs arise because there are people. Look, there are people around us every day who are fighting giants in their own lives. They should never have to do that alone. Okay, we're, we're being, we're actually being hypocritical If we breeze in and out of church or in and out of the coffee shop or in and out of a friend's house with little to no concern for how those around us are actually doing. It's hypocritical. It's inauthentic because that's not who we actually are. Right? We're God's people who are called to lay our lives down for one another, to love each other the way that Jesus loves us. So we always approach our relationships with a genuine interest and real concern for one another. And then when the call comes, when our brother or sister has a battle to fight, we get up, we get moving, and we fight alongside them every step of the way because in the kingdom of God, no one fights alone and look I I hope that everyone always likes everyone else in the church that would be great but the fact is how much you like or dislike someone should have absolutely nothing to do with our willingness to stand up and fight for that person The Israelites were in no way fond of the Gibeonites and yet when the call came through the dead of night the people of God were stirred to get up and get moving and make war against the enemies of the Gibeonites because honoring God's word meant fighting for each other. So let me just be bold for a moment and ask you who are you fighting for right now in your life? Because if the answer is no one, then the truth is you're not being the man or woman of God that he created you to be. There should never be a time in your life when you're not fighting for someone else. First of all, there are always people around you who are fighting giants in their own lives. And if we're not fighting with them, then we're not being authentic Christians. We live counterfeit lives when we're indifferent to the battles that other people are facing, And if your answer is that, well, I'm simply unaware of any battles that anyone else uh, in their life is facing right now, then I'm telling you, your relationships with other people are probably too shallow. Because there is always someone to pray for. There is always someone to provide for. There is always someone to protect. There is always someone to pick up off the battlefield while you finish the fight together. So don't be afraid to go deeper in your relationships. Don't don't be afraid to be authentic. Don't be afraid to love so deeply and care so wholeheartedly that you're willing to face any giant, anytime, anywhere for the sake of your fellow man. Because honoring God's word, it means we fight for each other. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 15. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Bethoron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So Joshua and the Israelites are locked in battle with the Amorites, but keep in mind there were five armies combined that the Israelites were trying to defeat. Right? That's, a, that's a whole lot of people to have to fight at one time, and they're starting to get away. So Israel gives chase, but there's simply not enough time in the day to kill them all. So Joshua does something that has never been done before or since. He speaks to the Lord and commands the sun and the moon to stand still, or more specifically for the earth to slow its rotation, to give them daylight for a long enough period of time to finish the fight. And as proof that this actually happened, Joshua points out that these events were recorded in the book of Jashar. That's a lost book as far as we know. However... There are numerous records and traditions from ancient nations all over the world that tell of one long day in their history, including uh, Greece and Egypt and others in the Eastern Hemisphere, and interestingly, there are many other nations in the Western Hemisphere who have recorded legends of one long night the American Indians, the South Sea Islanders and others, many others. So there are a lot of corroborating accounts of this long day or long night depending upon which side of the earth you were on when it happened. And yet even with the extending of the day and even though the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, the Israelites still could not kill all of the Amorites on their own. In fact, they couldn't even kill half of them. And so in addition to all of that help from God, verse 11 says earlier, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel and they died. More died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And of course, there's always somebody who tries to make the case that this wasn't God. You know, there are people who always want to try to naturally explain away the stories in the Bible. Drives me crazy, right? They said, this is just dumb luck. A hailstorm came up at just the right time. Well, first of all, there are only like five to eight days of hail per year in the entire coastal plain. And secondly, it always happens in midwinter. This was midsummer and not one Israelite was killed by the hail while over half of the Amorites were wiped out by that very same hail. (laughs) This was not a coincidence, and it certainly wasn't dumb luck. This was God fighting for his people. Okay, honoring God's word means he fights for you, which honestly has to be the case in the battles that we face in this life because even with all of our own effort and even with the help of others, it's never enough. We still need God to fight for us and he will when we honor his word. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, the apostle Paul wrote, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing and will do the things that we command. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. In other words, as you continue to honor the word of the Lord, he will establish you and he will fight for you. Yet for too many people, God is a last resort. He's the one we look to uh, to fight for us after we've exhausted all of our other options. Just look at how he fought for the people of Israel, right? He didn't wait to see uh, what happened. And then only after they'd fought all that they could, he stepped in at the end. No the Lord threw the Amorites into a panic as soon as the Israelites showed up. And then he threw hailstones down on them and killed over half of the enemy troops in the middle of the battle. And then toward the end of the battle, he extends the day so that Joshua and his men could clean up what was left after God had already decimated their enemies. Why in the world do we wait until we've exhausted all our resources and all of our help and all of our energy and all of our abilities to fight our own battles before calling God to fight for us late in the battle when all along, he is ready to fight for you now. In fact, he's ready to go before us to fight for us so that he can hand us the victory when we get there. Okay, God is not the last resort. He's the first priority in every battle that we face, and honoring his word means seeking him first before anyone or anything else. That was the key to victory for Joshua and the Israelites when they made God their first priority, when Joshua would seek out the Lord, even before getting out of his tent in the morning, God would go on before them and fight on their behalf. It's the times when they tried to fight their battles on their own that they were beaten. Okay, he fights for us, but we have to acknowledge him first. We have to seek him first. We have to make him our priority first. That is what honoring his word looks like. It's actually having a greater concern for obeying his commands than our concern for the battle we're facing, even in the midst of the battle. That's really tough. I know, for most of us to do, because when we're facing a battle in our lives, our human nature is to become fixated on that battle rather than on God and His Word. But the key to overcoming the battle is God fighting for you, and the key to God fighting for you is honoring His Word, making Him your first and greatest concern. In all things. And so, for a Christian to become more consumed with a personal battle than they are with God is to live in inauthentic faith. That's a counterfeit testimony to the world because it's not who we actually are. Okay, listen followers of Jesus Christ are not simply people who are acquainted with Christ, we're people who are consumed with Christ so consumed in fact that we're more concerned with him than we are with our personal battles, which is not only an authentic expression of our faith in Christ, but it is the key to seeing him fight our battles for us when we remain fixated on him in every circumstance, in every struggle, every giant that comes against us. We keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Christ. We allow him to fight for us. Let's keep going. Verses 16 through 21. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with the great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. I guess not. (laughs) The Amorites are soundly beaten by God, both through the Israelites' efforts and his own direct Intervention, And in the process, nearly all of their enemies are killed with the exception of a remnant who make it back to their cities. And then, of course, the five kings who decided to hide in a cave as their means of escape which has now become their prison. And as a result of God moving so powerfully on their behalf, Joshua says, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. When you, when you translate that phrase directly from the ancient Hebrew, it says literally no one sharpened his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In other words, there was a fear and reverence for God and his people to the point that no one would even open their mouths and utter an evil word against them, which I believe is a prophetic picture of the end of days when Christ returns and the final battle is fought and his enemies will never again be able to speak an evil word against Jesus Christ or his church. Let's keep reading verses 22 through 27. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. He hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at that time of the going down of the sun Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day and then uh, the remaining verses in the chapter which we won't read through this morning are a list basically of the remaining cities in southern Canaan that Joshua conquers including those with the, rem- the remnant of Amorites who escaped back to their cities. So he wipes out all that remain with only the five kings who were hiding out in a cave left to deal with. And so Joshua has them brought out and he instructs his commanders to put their feet on the necks of these five kings and then he says something interesting after all the armies have been defeated and wiped out and these five kings clearly defeated he says to his commanders nearly the same phrase that God spoke to Moses before his battle with the giants nearly the same phrase that God spoke to Joshua right before they faced these giant Amorites in battle he says to these men do not be afraid or dismayed be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua has to actually bolster their courage as they put their feet on the necks of these five giant kings from the Amorite clans, mighty and imposing warriors. They must have been who ruled over a proud people. And even in defeat, they must have been intimidating. But Joshua says, be strong and courageous because he knew that all the way back in verse eight, God made a promise when he said to Joshua before the battle even began, do not fear them for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them will stand before you. And in this moment, as his leaders put their feet on the back of the necks of five of the greatest kings and all of Canaan, Joshua knew that God had fulfilled his promise. You see, honoring God's word means his promises are fulfilled in your life. God made the promise before Joshua ever left his camp at Gilgal, but Joshua still had to do his part. He still had to honor God's word. He still had to face the enemy and fight the battle before he could enjoy the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, when we face these battles, these giants in our own lives, God promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to go before us. He promises to fight for us, but we still have to face our fears and fight our battles. We still have to honor his word just as the Israelites had to honor God's word as they faced these kings and their armies in order to see the promise fulfilled, which is why, listen, this is why we need more than a cursory reading, a casual reading of a few encouraging verses in the Bible when we are facing real battles in life. Okay, his promises for us. They're all tied up in his word for us. We we cannot honor his word if we don't know what his word says. And honestly, having a handful of go-to encouraging Bible verses isn't going to cut it when you have to battle real giants in your life. You just ask anyone who's gone through a life-changing battle. I'm talking about something that has rocked them to their core. As nice as as it is to hear a hundred people say, Hey, take heart, my friend. God is with you, and I'm praying for you. As nice as that is, encouraging comments and spiritual one-liners will not get you through that battle. No, you have to go deeper into the source of truth and understanding. You have to go deeper into God's word if you expect to know what to do. You have to go deeper if you want to know what he has to say about those giants that you're facing in your life. You have to go deeper if you're going to understand exactly what you're promised on the other side of that battle. Besides, none of us, none of us should ever be satisfied with our current understanding of God's word, no matter what level of understanding that happens to be, whether you read it every single day or hardly at all. Every one of us should always be hungry for a deeper understanding of God's word because it is in the depths of fellowship with his word that we receive our instructions for battle when we are facing giants in our lives. It is in the depths of fellowship with his word that we hear him say, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous. It is in the depths of fellowship with his word that his promises are revealed to us and that is how we're able to face our fears and fight our battles with confidence that his promises will be fulfilled in our lives but it hinges on our awareness and understanding of what he's actually saying to us. That means honoring his word by devouring his word. Just as Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. They became to me a joy. The delight of my heart consuming God's word is far more than a cursory reading. There's a book titled If by Mark Batterson. And in it, he writes about a famous neurosurgeon named Dr. Wilder Penfield. Batterson writes... By the end of his distinguished career as a pioneering neurosurgeon, Dr. Wilder Penfield had performed brain surgery on 1,132 patients. Many of them suffered from epileptic seizures, and Dr. Penfield wanted to know why. With the help of local anesthesia, the tops of patients' skulls were removed, but they remained conscious during the surgery so they could converse with Dr. Penfield. Sounds like a good time. During one of those open brain operations, Dr. Penfield made a fascinating discovery. When he used a very mild electrical current to stimulate different parts of the cortex, some of Dr. Penfield's patients experienced flashbacks, vivid memories from past events replayed in their mind's eye. One patient recalled every note from a symphony she had heard at a concert many years before. Another patient recalled sitting at a train stop as a child, and she gave a detailed description of each train car as it went by in her memory. Another patient visualized a childhood comb and was able to recount the exact number of teeth it had. Beyond the detailed recollection, the thing that struck Dr. Penfield about these memories was the fact that many of them were all but forgotten. In fact, some of them predated his patient's earliest memories. Dr. Penfield concluded that every sight, every sound, every experience, every conscious thought and subconscious dream is recorded on our internal hard drive, the cerebral cortex. Here is how the complex process works in simplified terms. When you hear a song see a picture, or read a verse of scripture, an engram is traced on the surface of the cerebral cortex. That encoding is also called a memory trace, and it's how we walk down memory lane. Almost like a deluxe etch-a-sketch, songs and pictures and words get traced and retraced. With each repetition, the engram gets inscribed deeper and deeper until it is literally engraved on the surface of the cerebral cortex. And since Jesus is the embodiment of the word, meaning the Bible is Jesus in words, that means when you pray or meditate or memorize the word of God, you are engraving Jesus on your brain. (laughs) You see, the more we consume God's word, the more it literally becomes a part of who we are. It shapes us. It shapes our thinking, it shapes our worldview, it, it changes how we see life and others, even the battles we face, because when we consume his word, it begins to consume us. Until everything in our lives begins to be viewed through the lens of scripture, and that is how. That is how we honor his word by feeding on it until it literally becomes a part of our very makeup engraved on our brains and in our hearts you see we all face battles in life don't we we all have giants at times in our lives that try to overtake us they try to take from us joy our joy our peace our health our provision our our confidence our resolve our relationships even and these giants they don't respect god or his word because they don't know god or his word But the truth is, these giants in our lives do not have the power to actually take anything away from us that God has already promised us. You understand that? The only thing the giants can do is stir up enough fear in our hearts and minds that we defeat ourselves. That's what kept happening to the Israelites in the previous chapters when they refused to honor God's word. They defeated themselves. But that didn't have to be the case for them and it does not have to be the case for us because the very same God who spoke the universe into existence, that very same God is speaking directly to you and to me. And if we would just honor that by consuming those words that he's spoken to us until they shape our very identity, then our lives become authentic, the promises become clear, and everything else becomes secondary. The giants that come against us and the battles we face, they, they no longer define us because what they have to say to us just simply doesn't matter anymore in light of what he is saying to us. That's when you'll find yourself always fighting for someone else. That's when you'll be able to recognize that God is always fighting for you, and that is when His promises are fulfilled in your life. Because honoring God's word is no longer just something you do, it actually becomes who you are. That is the most authentic life you could ever live. Let's pray.